Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who has been dealing with drug addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Well, today's episode is a first. This is the first time we've brought a guest back for a second interview, except for Jan, but she's not really like a regular guest. She's part of our family. So anyway, I'm grateful to have Heather Ross joining us again. You might remember I chatted with her on episode 10 about parent coaching. She's been my coach and Jan's coach for several series of sessions, and it's difficult to underestimate how much effect she's had on our family. I've learned so much about parenting a child through addiction with her. And even though Joey is really not doing well right now, I am able to be at peace and grounded most of the time because of the tools she's given me. On her own podcast, Living with Addiction, which you should go subscribe to right now and then come back to this one, (laughs) she talks about her journey with her daughter, Helena, who had a tumultuous adolescence and young adulthood because of substance use and primarily heroin. Heather has even interviewed Helena on her show. They had brutally honest conversations about what Heather did that was helpful to Helena, what they both wish they would have done differently, and what parents can do to support their addicted kids. Here's a short clip of their conversation from Heather's podcast from September 2021. Do you think there's something I could have done different that would have stopped this from ever happening? No. I don't because in a way I feel like I was like addicted before I was addicted. Like I remember in school being really young, like never they were passing out the the dare bracelets, you know, like to not do drugs. I was like, I'm definitely doing drugs. I mean, I was really young, like 10 years old. And I was just already planning to use before it ever happened. I'll put a link to all those episodes in our show notes if you want to take a listen. But tragically, about three months ago, after some really positive steps toward recovery, Helena used heroin that she didn't realize was laced with fentanyl, and she died. (sighs) So Heather is here to talk with us today about the death of her beautiful daughter. We have so much to learn from Helena and Heather both. Thank you for being here for our Safe Home Families, Heather, and we are all so very sorry that your Helena is gone. Thank you so much for having me on again. I wish it was under different circumstances, but I think that sharing about my experience is really important. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this work anymore at first, just because I thought maybe it would be too painful. But Mm -hmm. then I listened to one of those podcasts with Helena on it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear her voice. and. I realized as I was listening that there was no way that I could not do it, that I felt even more compelled than ever to share and hopefully be able to help other families learn from our experience because I felt so lost for so long and Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder, maybe things would be different today Had I been able to figure things out sooner, had there been help available to me sooner, there's somebody listening or probably many people listening right now that are experiencing that same sense of like, I don't know what to do Mm -hmm. and feeling like everything they're doing is not working because that's (laughs) where I was. Yes. 
And so I thought it just feels really important. I know it was important to my daughter and I feel close to her doing this work. Mm -hmm. And so it really feels like also a chance to honor her in this work as well as helping other people. Definitely. And that's what I hope to do too, is honor her, her legacy and just help, help other people with this. That's I think you and I are both on the same boat with that, right? Yeah. Just wanting to help. So why don't you give us a little bit of a picture of Helena's life? What was she like when she was really little? What was she into and what happened that um, got her into drugs and, you know, eventually ended her life? So I had a very difficult pregnancy and I bring that in because I always wonder if that had anything to do with her struggling emotionally as a teenager. She was actually born dead. They did an emergency C-section. She had to have several blood transfusions. They told me that she would be deaf and blind if she survived. Like the prognosis was awful. And somehow, amazingly, there didn't appear to be any issue. She was super smart, healthy, happy, wonderful kid. It was just easy to be her mother Mm -hmm. and like going to the school, any kind of meeting at school or anything. I always, it was fun to get to go to that stuff because I'd always get to hear how great my daughter was (laughs) and what a good kid she was. So there was never any sign of what was to come, Mm. but I've done some research since then because I started noticing this pattern of other parents I knew whose kids had similar situations at birth where they went without Mm. oxygen for a while Mm. and their kids also had similar issues as teenagers that's when it started coming up like during puberty and that's when it started coming up with her anxiety was the big thing and depression Mm -hmm. and I read some studies that 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 can have an effect on their ability to process emotions as they hit puberty. And maybe even if there's no signs of anything before that. So I don't really know if that plays a part, but I was in a bad marriage. Her dad was an alcoholic. Things weren't good. I was very stressed out during my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that could have played a part in me having a difficult pregnancy, like my inability to manage my emotions at that Mm -hmm. time, or even Mm -hmm. to, I didn't pick a great partner. (laughs) And then there's also the genetic component of the addiction that ran in both of our families. Mm -hmm. And so I always knew that it was a possibility, but I also felt like it was possible that I could outparent it. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) I love her so much that would never happen, right? Right. Yes. Which was maybe just something that I needed to believe. So I wasn't obsessed about it. But later on, that became a very painful belief for me. Like once she went from being just like, she just had the kindest, sweetest soul. And if you listen to those podcasts Mm -hmm. that she was on of mine, you can hear that and how she just wants to help people. Here's another clip from that September 2021 episode with Heather and Helena. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about me doing this podcast? I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to sit here like sober today and feeling as comfortable as I do and just hoping that something can come out of this and you know just help other people like I've just always had a very like helpful heart and you know just doing this is like 
a blessing in itself that I'm like sitting here in the state that I am today with you. And our relationship is as amazing as it is today. It's so beautiful to hear her voice talking to her mom like that. Now, here we go back to my interview with Heather. Her last year of high school, she had a 4.0 GPA. She was a competitive cheerleader and she was just known in her cheer tribe as being a really hard worker. When she wanted to do something, like when she was two years old, I can remember her deciding I'm potty trained. She just ripped off her diaper. It's over. <laughs> and then she decides she wants to figure out how to buckle her shoes. And she just sat on the couch until she could figure it out. Like that was, wow. she was very determined and really good at everything that she did. And we had a great relationship. But I think that the first thing that was really difficult for her was when her father and I got divorced, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. But I also had this false sense that because she seemed okay on the outside, that everything was okay. It was a couple mm -hmm. of years later that she started showing some signs of anxiety when she was really mm -hmm. young. And then about in sixth grade, it came back a little bit more when some things, some more instabilities happened with her dad. And at the same time, I also got remarried and we moved to a different town. I had a very different definition of trauma back then mm -hmm. that I thought it had to be like PTSD with a soldier who's yeah, gone to war yeah. and seen these horrible things. Like that was what I thought about trauma. I didn't realize that it could be this looser definition where maybe you and I experience the same thing and it's more traumatic to me mm -hmm. than it is to you, or it's not traumatic to you at all. Mm -hmm. And that multiple little things can build up over time. Yes. And so now I can see where there were these different traumas that built up. And there was the feeling of her losing me in that second marriage. Mm -hmm. It's not like she lost me, but now there's somebody else there that she's got to share me with. Yeah, especially and, as an only child. Right. And yes. she's got step siblings suddenly. And um, her dad was less present and not as available mm. because he was struggling with his own addiction. Mm. And so, you know, there was all these things that looking back on, I'm like, yeah, of course she experienced trauma. And of course this was hard on her. And I wish I had gotten her help sooner or even known that she needed help for those things. It's hard for me to share these things. I have to give myself a lot of self-compassion as I'm sharing it because blame isn't going to help anything. That's yes. just going to keep me separated mm -hmm. from sharing and being able to help people. So it takes a lot of self-compassion to share these mm -hmm. things that I contributed to not getting mm -hmm. her help with that trauma. Mm -hmm. And so in sixth grade, I think she started experimenting mm -hmm. and then it escalated. But I kept looking at everything as if from who Helena was before she started experimenting, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't willing to acknowledge the change. There was a, a lot of denial and I didn't know what to do to handle it anyway. So of course, I just wanted everything to go back to normal. So any hint that things were going back to normal, I went back into denial and like everything's okay. And so we kind of got stuck in that cycle for a couple of years. She got really she got better at hiding it. Oh, yes. But then by her freshman year in high school, she couldn't really hide it anymore. She was mm -hmm. struggling with an eating disorder. So you could physically see that. And then there was depression. 
And she had started smoking cigarettes and smoking pot and taking Xanax. And she got expelled from school for the last two months of her freshman year because Mm she went on lunch and got high with some other kids and got caught. And they just had a zero tolerance policy. Wow, that's pretty strict. Man alive. Two months. Yeah, yeah. So she wasn't allowed to return to school, but she still finished the year with a 4.0 GPA. (laughs) But that was the last year she was ever in school. I tried to get her to go back her sophomore year and things just really started escalating from there. She started running away all of the time. I was trying to control and manipulate her addiction, like just stop and everything will be okay. Not there's a problem here. And she needs help with it. And she is using these drugs and other substances to help herself. Yes. So the addiction isn't really the problem. It's a symptom of the bigger problem. Absolutely. But for me, initially, looking at it that way just added to the problem. It just pushed her away from me. It really hurt our relationship. Mm -hmm. and. She just always was saying to me, you just don't understand. And I kept saying, I did understand. Like I was always denying her reality Uh uh because I needed her to see my reality because in my reality, everything could be okay. And I got to be a good mom. I was taking everything so personally because going back to that belief I talked about before, if I was a good enough mom, I could outparent her addiction or anything else that came up. So she just would have done what you said. Everything would have been just fine. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which now I know is just so impossible. And I've apologized to her so many times for how frustrating that must have been. Mm -hmm. But looking back, we even realized that actually on one of the podcasts that we were talking, like we were just both addicted to being numb. Right. I was like, just suck it up. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. You were asking her to be numb, right? And and you were trying to be numb. You didn't want her addiction to wake you up out of your numbness either, right? Exactly. Here's Helena and Heather again from September. We're actually, I mean, a lot alike. Yeah, we are. We really We're a lot yeah. alike. We just use different sources to get to what, you know, how we want to feel. Mm-hmm. I can really relate to this part because Joey and I also numb ourselves with different substances. So I totally get it. All right, back to our interview again. It's easier just to go la, 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 la. Everything's fine. Just manage it. It's all right. Everything's good. Yeah. And it's so funny that I kept wanting her to go back to the way things before, but obviously that was a broken system. Yeah. It seemed like things were going well, right? before she started using, but things probably weren't as great as we thought they were. I'm thinking the same thing with my kid. He was a great kid all the way up until about 12 when things started going off the rails. But there were, when I look back, there were signs that he was not handling things great and not able to express himself and not, you know, there were signs if I were paying attention and had the tools to know what I was looking at. But I just thought, oh, look, he's behaving so well. He's behaving so well. He's so cute and he's so nice to everyone. But then at adolescence, they're like, throw that out the window. I don't care anymore. (laughs) 
Yeah. And she was such a people pleaser, right? She just wanted to make everybody happy and she was doing it at her own expense. Yes. And they can do that for a while. Joy does the same thing, you know, and that works for, for a while. And then after, I guess maybe once they start grabbing onto the drugs, they're less able to, to really manage all that masking that that takes. Yeah, she was trying, but there just came a point that her addiction got to be too hard. And then she started running away a lot. And every time she would run away because she was a minor, I was reporting it to the police. Mm-hmm. And I was initially frantically looking for her. But once I realized she wasn't going to leave the area, I started realizing that me looking for her and all of the drama that the running away created Mm -hmm. was becoming a part of the problem. Living Mm -hmm. in that chaos was part of the addiction. And so Mm -hmm. I, which was like against everything as a mom was like, I'm not going to contribute to that chaos anymore. Like that was Mm -hmm. kind of the first healthy decision that Mm -hmm. I made. And I also shared with the world for the first time when she ran away that we were dealing with this problem. So I was no longer hiding. And I think that that was another healthy thing that happened and it opened up more healthy, positive things happening. So I kind of followed her from a distance. I had my own little sneaky ways of knowing where she was. Mm -hmm. And She ended up getting found by the police one night and because she was very resistant and rebellious at this point, she tried to escape from them and she wouldn't have been under arrest, but she was kind of under arrest after this. And then they wanted her to do certain things and she wouldn't do them. And so they put her on probation. And this is an important part of the story because this is where her drug use really changed. Mm -hmm. She was under house arrest. And she had to do two drug tests a week where you call, it's random when they say your color, that's when you have to go in. Okay. And pot was her drug of choice at the time. Okay. But that takes 30 days generally to get out of your system. That hangs around for a long time. But heroin doesn't. (sighs) Yeah. And that's why she started (sighs) using heroin. And here's what's wild about that is... Before it started controlling her life and she was addicted to the point where she would be physically ill if she didn't use it. Before that, I actually stood there with her in front of the judge. So the last day when she was getting off probation Mm -hmm. and she shared with me later that she had used heroin the day before and her probation officer almost drug tested her before court that morning, but he didn't. She would have tested positive for heroin that morning but here I'm standing behind her because that's what you have to do in Oklahoma with a minor you go in front of the judge with them and he's calling her a success story Mm -hmm. and everything was done her and I were supposed to go somewhere that afternoon to celebrate I was so proud of her I thought she was Mm -hmm. doing so great but really she had started using heroin Things are not one size fits all. Like you hear a lot of people say that when their kids got in the court system or something that it helped them, Mm -hmm. but it had the opposite effect for my daughter. But I kept thinking once she gets in the court system, everything's going to be okay because she's going to be forced to be off drugs. And the accountability will help. Yes. But it did it. The other way. Wow. Yeah. Because she she figured out when they were testing, right? It was supposed to be random, but she kind of figured out the pattern. Yeah. You kind of know because once you've had your two times for the week and especially over the weekend, they were Uh, closed. 
she knew oh. it doesn't stay in your system that long. And she was pretty thin. So she knew she could flood her system and she was able to pass oh, man. for several weeks, maybe even months. I can't remember, but it was long enough that they felt like, okay, she's getting it. She's done everything that they've asked her to do. Oh. And she was almost 18. And at that point, I allowed her to move out on her own and start having her own journey, mm -hmm. which created space for me to also start my own healing because I got really worried when she was under house arrest. I had quit my job because I was really struggling with my career working so much. I felt like I just can't do this anymore. I was mm -hmm. at my wits end. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband at the time, he had been laid off after I quit my job. And I could just see like this nuclear mushroom cloud over our house. Like <laughs> we're all going to be home. She's mad because she's on house arrest. Oh. So that's when I started getting coaching for myself. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So allowing her to move out and giving myself that space was the beginning of both of our healing journeys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did her moving out though, did she... Uh, start using more now that she was on her own or did she pull it together for a little bit or? Yeah, she definitely started using more. And I don't think it was because she was out on her own because when she was in the home, I was never able to stop her no matter what I did. I was like yeah. a super sleuth. I'd be up all night Googling, how do I help her? Yeah. And everything I would find was like what you do when they want help and they want to change and they're willing to try these things yeah. with you. But Helena didn't want any of that at yeah. that time. Until that point, there's very little to do, right? Yeah. Right. All it's all soothing. what you do yourself, not how you can control them. That's, <laughs> That's right. what I was That's looking for. Right. How do I control her? Yes. Oh gosh, if we could only do that. Did all the sleuthing help or did it just make it all more chaotic? It definitely made things I don't know. It had like a dual purpose. It was like a double-edged sword. One, it was educational. So it helped me to realize just how bad her addiction was and how mm -hmm. it was escalating. Mm -hmm. But then it also caused problems between us because trust is a two-way street and she didn't yeah. trust me anymore at right. all. Yeah. And so it was both sides. It was good and bad. Mm. Okay. So she went out on her own. Yeah. And then I started really working on myself. And just accepting her as she was. I stopped mm -hmm. wanting her to be somebody else. And I started just coming from a place of love instead of fear. Mm -hmm. I started really learning about addiction and understanding it. I was really focused on myself, feeling my emotions again for the first time, creating that mind-body connection and seeing our similarities instead of our differences. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to start getting boundaries, of course, and start healing our relationship. And so even though her addiction was escalating, our relationship was still getting better and closer. Mm -hmm. And I was able to support her from a distance. And that became my focus, mm -hmm. loving her unconditionally and supporting her without supporting her addiction. Yeah. These are the things that you've taught me so well. I'm still learning the lessons, but this is how I feel like you've saved our family is that you've allowed us to have a relationship, even though whatever, even though whatever is at the end of that sentence, that we can still be in relationship with each other. And it can be pretty good. 
It really can. Like as much as they're available, right? Mm -hmm. We have to accept that too. They Mm -hmm. they only have so much emotional availability for us when their whole focus in life becomes about finding and using and having enough money to get their drugs. So you don't want to squander that little window you have with your kid when they come toward you. You don't want to squander that with berating them or making them feel shame or, you know, why aren't you or why don't you? So just cherishing those moments, whatever, whatever those moments are that you have when they come toward you. Yeah. You got really good at that too. Or you still are really good at that. And it changes everything, especially now. I think I didn't know that I was only going to have 21 years with my daughter. And I look back on the way I have lived the last seven years as her mom. And I am so grateful that Mm -hmm. I did the hard work because for some people, we get this message of tough love and that you have to turn your back on them. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that you can help them. And that just never sat right with me. There had to be another way. And so I'm so grateful that I found a way to expand out of fear and into love for her and making all of my decisions from love and realizing that love isn't weak. It's actually very strong and healthy when you have the right understanding of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so, so grateful that my daughter died knowing I supported her and loved her unconditionally Mm -hmm. and that I maximized those few years that I Mm -hmm. had with her. Now, here's another poignant clip from the September interview between Heather and her daughter. And then I think that it's also really just helped make us closer when I do share my real self with you. But I Mm -hmm. think there's this thing like moms don't do that. The conditioning that that we get that how moms are supposed to act. And I just have had to throw that totally out the window. Yeah, it's important. I don't want to make it seem like I'm just suddenly like here and I'm blessed and I'm happy and like this was hell to get here. I'm not even going to lie. Like it's not going to be an easy road, but it's a road sure worth going down and at least trying to get through it. But I, I definitely am thankful though that I at least gave myself a chance for sure. I'm grateful too. And I'd like to acknowledge how hard you've had to work for this, that this was not easy for you, that you have really had to fight for yourself and that just removing the substances does not fix anything and that I've got to work on myself and my own stability so that I can be supportive. We're both really basically working on the same things. Mm-hmm. For people who like ever feel like ashamed or guilty or whatever, like any person who is getting sober is going to feel those feelings and like, you know, just having accountability is okay, but you have to find some way to move past that and surround yourself with people who can help you move past that as well. Like that's very, very important. It's not just the drugs that are addicting for some people, it's also the lifestyle. So like you got to make sure that you're creating a new, better lifestyle that isn't anything like the old one because that will just suck you right back in. Yeah, I think that's important for parents too, right? Like we have to do the same thing. (laughs) We have to surround ourselves with people who are emotionally healthy so that we can create new habits. Mm -hmm. 
really, really appreciate you doing this. I know you had to go back and think about times that were unpleasant. And I know that that is not easy. To me, it it feels like a lifetime ago. Like it's hard for me yeah. to that I was that person. Yeah. The biggest thing was just remembering. Like my memory from like using and trying to block things out is very, very bad. So it was hard. For, it was a little hard for me to put myself back in that mindset and think about how I was thinking then because I am very different person today than I was six years ago, which is a very fucking awesome thing to say because I never would have thought I'd be saying those words that I've changed my thinking patterns, changed my habits, like starting to love myself, care for myself and others, like and have the capacity to care for others. So it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it is. I love watching it. I'm so, so proud of you. I can't even express how proud of you I am and how grateful I am that you're sober today and that we have the relationship that we have and that we could even have this open conversation. And and hopefully there's some things that come out of it that help people, help parents understand their kids a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing we're having this conversation as well with <laughs> We try and, you know, just how I would have been in the old days, like just. Oh, know. this would have been a great chance for you to just tell me Rip. all the things you didn't like about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And I really love you and I appreciate you doing this. Of course. I love you too, Mom. Mm-hmm. It's very evident and when she was on your pod and um, the picture that you put on Facebook. Oh, my God, I can't. Uh, that day that you announced that she had passed away, you put a picture of you and her that you had just taken. It was the most beautiful picture. You both looked so happy and loving to each other. And uh, I remember seeing that picture and go, oh, oh, there's Heather and Helena. And then I read it and like, what? And I just, I was like, no, 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 no. Cause I'm on a whole bunch of parents of drug addicts groups and parenting groups. I'm like, okay, this cannot be the same family. This, it was not computing, but that it was really true that you lost her. And you had just taken that picture like two days before, right? Yeah. She would have just, just been here. Thank mm-hmm. God. I'm so, so grateful that I got to see her. Cause you live kind of far away. Yeah. She's like, she lived like three and a half hours from me. And I'm just so grateful for that last visit. And I found out after she left that she had used before she came here and I didn't know it. Mm. I guess she probably just didn't use very much. Mm -hmm. One part of me is glad that I didn't know because I didn't want to act any different. Like that was the last time I got to see my daughter and we had so much fun. Like we laughed and we're silly and we took all those pictures. Normally she's kind of weird about taking pictures sometimes. And so I'm so grateful. We got Mm. pictures of her with my parents and she saw my whole family. It's crazy. The last couple of months she saw people, she hadn't seen her dad in like four years And she saw him and she hadn't seen her brother in like two and she had seen him and met her niece. It's almost like the universe was conspiring to wrap things up. It's crazy when I look back at it. Wow. But you all had, of course, no idea. None of you know. But thank goodness for those times that you can remember recent times. Yeah, that is like a little a little God moment. It seems like that 
that whoever, whatever says, here you guys go. Yeah. <laughs> Make the best of this memory you have right here. So I can't imagine what it would have been like if you had fought with her that last time or got into it or whatever, tried to wrangle her into rehab or whatever, and it had gone badly, how that would have changed how you're feeling right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to backtrack for just a second. She died December 2nd. So about a year and a half before that, she had gone to rehab for the first time and she spent two months there. It was really difficult for her the first time. She never was able to get any time sober more than 30 days. She had been living in Oklahoma and I had moved to Florida. She moved here, lived with us for a little while. It was a very difficult time. And she went to rehab in April again. And this time it was completely different. Like she was a different person in rehab. She wasn't fighting it. Mm. And her sobriety was completely different. And I really started seeing my daughter again for the first time. I had surrendered to the fact that she might not ever get sober. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she was, was so amazing and wonderful. And she was doing so good. I just saw the light in her getting brighter every time I saw her and more and more of her personality was coming out. And we got a lot of beautiful visits. So she had been mostly sober for the last year and a half. Like she had been constantly improving her life and her mm -hmm. relationship with herself and her addiction. But like we struggle too. doesn't matter how mm -hmm. good of a place we're in. We always struggle. So somebody can be doing really well on one hand. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, she's still struggling with cravings. And there were other things happening in her life that brought some instability in the sober living house that she was in. I'm going to interrupt again and bring in Helena's voice here about sobriety and relapse. That's actually something I've been dealing with a lot lately is fear of losing my sobriety. And I think about using sometimes, but like, I just have to understand that that is normal and like it will get less and less over time. And knowing that the need slash want and the obsession is not nearly as intense and present as it once was. And I try to hold on to that, knowing that it'll just get better over time. And here's Heather again with our interview. So I believe that now that I have her journal and I looked at some of the things that she wrote, I can see where those traumas that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier were really triggered by what was happening in the sober living house. Oh. But without the hindsight of her journal, it didn't really hit me before that. Oh, okay. And so I think that that's why she relapsed. Okay. But I know that she didn't intend to keep using because she used to inject heroin, but she had only snorted it, which I say only snorted it. That's not something you think that you would normally say, but <laughs> compared to <laughs> injecting it is a huge harm reduction. Yes. Yes. Because the needles could be dirty and then you get hepsi or... It, that could kill you, right? If you have dirty needles. Yeah, she's had really bad infections from it before. And also it's just harder, the cravings and everything. She oh, always said it was really? harder to yeah. get off using heroin when she'd been injecting it. Okay. So she was trying, even though she was using again, and you didn't really realize the extent that so she was using, she came she to was... visit me on a Monday and she had used that day. She died like after midnight on Thursday. So 
Monday, she stayed here. She went to see a friend when she left here Tuesday morning and she spent the night with that friend. She called me and told me that she had relapsed, that she got kicked out of her sober living. And this is a really critical time for somebody, right? When they get yeah. kicked out of sober living, but she had a sponsor. She told me she had a plan that she was going to call her sponsor. She had to go back to where she lived in Boynton Beach on Wednesday. She had to work that she was going to get a hotel. She was going to talk to her sponsor. We talked about things. I had this false sense of security, the way that she had used. And the fact that she could get fentanyl wasn't even in my mind. I said to her, please don't just say F it. Like you have worked so hard. I really tried to support her and how well she was doing. I didn't want her to beat herself up. And she said all the things that I wanted to hear mm-hmm. that made me feel like everything was going to be okay. And then she went back to Boynton Beach on Wednesday and she worked that night and went to the hotel that night, got there around midnight and used. And I believe that she died around 1230 in the morning that she died like really quickly after using. And she died because of the fentanyl. Yes. Yeah. The the police suspected it when they called me, but acute fentanyl poisoning was the toxicology results. Now I'm going to get more results because I want to know exactly how much it was at some point, but I just haven't, I'm not ready to drudge up with the emotions that that's going to, because yeah. when I found out, when I got the the call that that was definitely what it was, I was just so angry because my daughter would still be here. Yeah. If it wasn't for fentanyl, like that wasn't the heroin that killed her. No, it was this. um, And can you explain what is fentanyl and how is it getting into our kids' street drugs? What's happening with that? Well, I just know that it's being used to cut the heroin because it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. It's more available. And maybe the person who's selling the drugs doesn't necessarily know because who knows how many hands it passed through from the time the heroin was made until it gets to the person Mm -hmm. who sold it to my daughter probably didn't even know. Mm -hmm. But I think it's over half of the overdoses in 2020 were attributed to fentanyl, which was close to 100,000. So it's like the number one killer now of people ages 18 to 45. It's really, it's really horrible. And it's, it's spiked immensely in the last like two years, right? Yes. Like like it's a totally game changing. It's not some small little slope. It's like, it went way higher. Is it just about money? Do you think? Is it the, you know, the drug cartel? It's almost like you're trying to figure out the thought process of somebody who's using. Yeah. And then you try to figure out the thought process of somebody who is selling and distributing a drug that is destroying lives and families and communities. So it doesn't make sense to me. There's nothing I've come across yet that makes sense to me. But I think that to me, that's what it's like when I try to figure it out. It's never going to make sense to me. Yeah. So as parents of addicted kids, we, we imagine that phone call. I've imagined it a gazillion times. I imagine what it would be like if I got that phone call that, that Joey's dead, but you actually received that phone call. Was it anything like what you imagined it would be? Was the imagining worth it, worth anything? Did it help you at all? I went through this phase when she first moved out, constantly picturing her dead. 
And I know that a lot of parents really struggle with that. And so I taught myself how to stop doing that. Like Mm -hmm. I was giving it so much power. It was kind of taking over Mm -hmm. my life. And I realized that there's no upside to it. Instead of the possibility of it happening, we're living in it happening all the time when we're imagining it. And for the most part, there's not much that we can do to stop it if they make that choice. Mm-hmm. My daughter chose not to call her sponsor. Oh, she didn't call her sponsor. She didn't reach out for that connection. She didn't have any support. Mm-hmm. I think maybe had planned she was going to use and that's why she did it. Yeah. I wonder if she thought, well, I don't want to call a sponsor because I have already decided I'm going to use and I don't want anyone to get in my way of doing that. You know, once the ball has started rolling, it's kind of, you don't want anyone to say, hey, hold up. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think she'd been really struggling with thoughts about using. And so she's like, well, I used once I got kicked out of my sober living. I'm going to use a couple of times and then mm-hmm. I'll get back on, you know, yeah. the straight and narrow. Yeah, I'll start working on my sobriety again and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Anyone who's ever broken a diet early in the day, you're like, well, F it. I've already ruined it for today. I'm just going to keep eating the rest of today. And tomorrow I will start the diet again. Yeah. Might as well finish it off. Yeah. yeah. The cake or cookies or whatever it was. Might as well. I've already ruined it for today. So totally. I think everyone can understand that impulse. Yeah, absolutely. And I love using that example because again, it's a similarity. It helps us to relate, Mm -hmm. to understand the human behavior. Like we all have similar impulses. It's just a matter of how we rank them as better or worse. Yeah. I can't remember the question now that I <laughs> we were talking about actually receiving the phone call and okay. Uh, yeah. Receiving the phone call. So I had stopped picturing it. Mm-hmm. I knew there, there's no upside to it. I don't want to put my body through because you know, you're releasing those chemicals in your body when you think about it and have mm-hmm. the feelings as if it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so that day I knew that something was wrong. I hadn't been able to get a hold of her. I called her best friend. Her best friend hadn't been able to get a hold of her. And she sent the sponsor to the hotel, thank God, because I didn't know what hotel she was at. Mm. And I was driving somewhere. It was like an hour and a half drive. I just knew in my heart because she hadn't read my text message. It was time for her to be to work. She had become very punctual and it wasn't like her not to answer me. And she had read receipts on her text messages. So if she had been at work and read it, but not responded, I would still know like none of that was happening. And I just got to where I was going and I got the call. I knew the call was coming because I had this filter on my phone that if the number's not in my phone, that it would go straight to voicemail. And I took that filter off because I expected this call. And I just went so numb. And, you know, in the past I had thought if my daughter dies, I'm just going to die. There's no living without her. I'm just going to spontaneously combust or something like I can't even deal with it. Mm -hmm. But I went so numb that frustrated me because I wanted to feel something. It felt wrong Mm -hmm. that this is happening and I can't feel anything. Wow. Were you driving while you got this call? I just got to where I was going and it just walked in the house. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was going to see this guy I'd been dating. We hadn't been dating long. And the police officer was insisting I put him on the phone. 
And I was like, I will put this on speaker, but this is my daughter and you will tell me. Oh my God. Why did you want to talk to him? What was that? He didn't want to tell me for some reason. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't even know. I had the clarity to think I'll put you on speaker so he can hear what you're saying, but you're going to tell me I gave birth to her. She's my daughter. You're telling me he's never even met her. Oh my God. And so luckily I wasn't alone. I had somebody with me that was very supportive and worked with my family to get me back home and help me get back to my family. But I was just sitting there in this disbelief, you know, and I told my sister and I remember thinking her reaction is more appropriate than I feel right now. Mm. And then telling my best friends and they called me and they were just bawling and their reaction is more appropriate than mine right now. And I was just trying to make myself feel angry or something. I just couldn't feel anything. And mm-hmm. that felt awful. Mm-hmm. But the appropriate thing for you to feel is whatever you were feeling at that time, which was you shock, were kind of probably, yeah, you're shocked. Your body was kind of shut down. You were like, uh, analyzing your own behavior and saying, well, this yes, it was like feeling. outside of myself. Watching this happen, it was definitely an out-of-body experience. But that's also like how I work, right? I'm always like, why is this happening? I I do the same thing. I'm sure I would do something similar. I'm totally not judging you. I'm just, it's just interesting what our mind does sometimes to keep us from totally. Now looking back, I'm grateful that the shock was Mm -hmm. like a buffer from a pain that slowly came in. Mm -hmm. And the more it came in, the more grateful I was for not being able to feel in that moment. Okay. So it gave me time, I guess, to somewhat adjust as the pain starts really coming in. Now, how this is the part that I can't figure out either because I also think I would self-combust if I got that phone call, but you have not self-combusted. You've actually risen and uh, given yourself to others. You know, you've not only just kept yourself saying you're out there again, already helping others. So what are you doing? What, or maybe what contributed to you being able to be this healthy while Helena was alive? Or what have you done since she's died that's enabled you to keep going? Right. So like all of the work that I did before gave me a nice, strong resilience muscle. Mm -hmm. And last year I went through breast cancer as well, which was like another Mm -hmm. heavy journey that also gave me a big resilience muscle. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of coming back from that when Helena died. So I had this whole new set of skills. So I'm just doing exactly what I've been doing all along. I'm doing what I did in her active addiction, what I did when she was sober. And now it's the same thing that's helping me with her grief. Like, have you ever heard of post-traumatic growth? I have. Yes. That's a very interesting area of study. Yeah. So it's going through a traumatic experience and how you respond to it. You can really grow from that experience. Mm -hmm good things can come from a bad experience. And so Mm -hmm. I think I've experienced a lot of post-traumatic growth, which has also really helped me in this, but I have a community. I am meeting other mothers who have experienced the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we have that instant bond, just like we have an instant bond when we meet because our kids both struggle with substance use. Mm -hmm. Like you, you need that connection. And so 
I already had that. So it was easy for me to instantly start seeking out other parents. I needed examples of people who were doing this well, as well as you could. And those people just started showing up in my life and giving me hope that I could experience this horrible trauma and still do well and still help other people. That really is something that fills me up and helps me, you know, it also helps me still feel connected to Helena. Mm -hmm. And it's that really focusing on myself. What do I need right now? What's going to help me get through this? I did a podcast recently about struggling well. It's okay Mm -hmm. not to be okay, Mm -hmm. but I can support myself through that. So it's Mm -hmm. all the same skills that all the things that happened in my life to this point the work that I did to show up for myself in those mm-hmm. situations, it's all coming together right now. And I'm using it to help myself through this as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. connecting to my daughter through love still. Yeah. There's this huge temptation to connect through pain. Mm-hmm. It almost feels wrong. And I know that a lot of parents experience this with addiction as well. It almost feels wrong to go on and live a good life. And I felt this resist when your child is suffering. And now then when your child is dead and not able to experience the beauty of this life anymore. And I had to really make a conscious decision and let go of that resistance to that and decide I'm going to connect to her through love again Mm -hmm. and let go of connecting to her through guilt and shame and pain because that's only going to hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. And this way it helps you and it it helps other people and it brings your light out. Otherwise we'd lose you too. You know, we'd lose two people if you just live in that pain all the time. Oh God. But I'm sure that there are days that are better than others. <laughs> yeah. Like the way I'm talking about it might make it sound like, oh, this is easy for me. It is not easy for me. This is, it is work and it is a conscious decision every day. Sometimes multiple times a day that I am going to live and that I am going to use this to help other people mm-hmm. and that I am going to honor my daughter's life. Yes. Well, you are definitely doing that. You are helping me for sure. And I know millions of other parents out there that are hearing your voice and hearing. I don't, I don't think it's very common, the things that you talk about and the way that you related with your daughter when she was alive and not the way you're relating with her after she's gone. I think it's very unusual and it's very admirable. Now here's one last clip of Heather talking with Helena. This one's from October, 2021. And when I was able to let that go and take some of that pressure off of you and let you have your own experience, I can still remember, it was like one of the first times that you let me hug you in a long time. We were in the bathroom in the house on Miller Avenue. But that night, for some reason, I had not tried to tell you you were wrong when you were telling me how you felt. And it was the first time in a really long time you let me hug you. Yeah, it's crazy. I was very disconnected. Yeah, so I think I probably really appreciated that. Just, I felt like understood a little bit. And I'm sure I just soaked that in. It was very, that helped me open up to hug you. 
Yeah. And now you probably don't want me sharing this. I make you sit on my lap all the time. I'm like, I've got to get all those years of hugs back. <laughs> like, I'm going to hold you until you make me stop now. <laughs> I wonder if there's anything that you re- you wish you would have done. Is there anything that got kind of left unfinished with Helena? Or are you totally... Are you totally at peace with how everything ended uh, between the two of you? So I'm at peace with how I showed up for her, right? Like I know that she felt deeply loved, even just cherished by me and that I unconditionally loved and accepted her. So I'm at peace with that. And I'm very happy with how I showed up and, that in itself is also a choice, right? I could mm-hmm. torture myself, yeah, but I make the choice to be at peace with that, knowing that I did the best I possibly could. Mm-hmm. But, and I want to be careful here that when we go through the what if scenarios, we tend to think that the better ideas that we come up with would have worked. Uh, we never really know if the know. what if scenarios would yeah. have worked. So That's I don't true. know if this would have actually worked or made a difference. But I think it's important to share because it goes into that concept of enabling. And I think that it's a really misunderstood term. When Helena first went into sober living, when she was leaving rehab, I did something that most people would consider enabling. I found her sober living house for her. I made all the calls for her. I set it up. I was like, you show up this day, get all your stuff packed, get your Uber. I paid for the Uber, sent her to the sober living. And I feel like that was the best thing for us. I don't even know how somebody can make those decisions by themselves at that point. Yeah. Right. Like myself going through surgeries and stuff last year with breast cancer, I needed help. Yeah. Right. Though the logistical things are just like way beyond your capability sometimes when you're dealing with other giant things. Yes. I totally understand what you're saying. And so I didn't feel wrong about that. It felt like the right thing to do. It felt like the loving thing to do. And she ran with it. She got a job. She was supporting herself. She was doing wonderful. And what I wish I had done differently is so I knew that she needed to move out of the sober living, that the environment there wasn't healthy, but this time I wanted her to do it herself. I made a list of places. I sent them to her, but it was really hard for her because she wanted her dog to live with her. And there's not a ton of places where you can have your dog. So she was struggling with that decision too. So I wanted to give her an opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I had helped her sooner out of that environment and gotten her into a better, healthier, more supportive environment sooner that I had done the legwork again. Mm -hmm. But hindsight is 2020, right? Like I didn't know the things that she was writing in her journal. I knew that was hard for her, but I didn't realize exactly how triggering it was. until I read it in her own words. And then Mm. it totally made sense. And now Mm. I could have done all of that. And maybe we would have ended up in the same place. But the reason I think this story is important is because we're the only ones that have to live with our decisions. 
And nobody else can tell us what enabling is. Each of us has to decide what is right for us in our family. There are no Al-Anon police, but that's what I call the Al-Anon police because <laughs> you hear that message of like, everything so is enabling. Ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes. like, that's the thing is that you have to decide. You have to become the person that you've been looking for to help you. You have to be in touch with your feelings and your instincts, your intuition. and we're the only ones that have to live with our decisions, but no matter what decision you make, just be kind to yourself. Cause you don't have a crystal ball and neither did I. Yeah. You only know what you know at the time. Right. And we're all human and we're all just doing the best we can, including our kids. Exactly. You know? uh, yeah. They're doing the best they can. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you about? I think the biggest thing is just don't go through this alone. Don't let the stigma of addiction keep you isolated. I would have been reading about how much harder grief is on parents if they have what's called, I didn't even know this was such a thing as like self-imposed stigma or self-inflicted mm. stigma. It just makes it that much harder because we're so afraid of what other people are thinking. We isolate, we don't get the help. Mm -hmm. And then it just makes everything harder all the way around. Yeah. But I know that it takes vulnerability and you have to be brave, but keep looking until you find somebody that resonates with you, mm -hmm. that can help you, that what they're saying makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then take all of that stuff and whatever you like, take that in, but whatever you don't like, leave that behind, figure out ways to become the person you've been looking for to help you because nobody can tell us exactly what to do when we're humans with human emotions. Nobody knows our kids as well as we do. I think each situation is unique and different. So we have mm -hmm. to take all this information and digest it and make it our own and really be the advocate for ourselves and our kids. Nobody can fix this for us. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's situation is just different. And, uh, do you, you don't, do you, don't, do you feel like people have been judging you since she died or do you feel totally supported because you've surrounded yourself with yeah. people? <laughs> yeah. So the only time I felt judged is by the police. Yeah. Other than that, uh, since I don't judge myself and I'm really grateful. It just happened to be, I was doing a coaching session maybe a month before Helena died and they were talking about somebody they knew that died, that the family didn't celebrate them because they had shame. And that just really struck with me. And so I was like, I'm going to celebrate my daughter and I'm going to tell everybody she died from her addiction. And I love the hell out of her no matter what, you know what yeah. I mean? I am not going to be quiet about it. And I'm going to just celebrate her and her life and her strengths and how beautiful she was no matter what she was struggling with. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel it from others because I don't feel it so within myself. Yeah. But if you're feeling it within yourself, it's going to be reflected back to you sure. from for people sure. who are surrounding you. But yeah, the police are really yeah. the only people I felt that with. Oh, your stories about the police just make me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> but you you hear so many people, I don't know, like on Facebook, you you see these kind of death notices, but it's just so ambiguous. They're like, yeah. you know, some 25-year-old died, some friend of a friend of a friend's kid died. And and they're just like, they don't say why, or they don't, maybe it was suicide or maybe it was drugs or who knows, but whatever it is, it's none of it is shameful. And if we would all just, just tell the truth of what happened, I think that 
we'd all, we'd all be better off. I, I agree. The more I talk about it, the more I open the door for other people to talk. Same with you. You don't even have to do it in a really big open way but slowly in your life and really looking at what you think about it, mm-hmm. getting clean and clear on your own beliefs. You know, mm-hmm. my initial beliefs, as I said before, were painful to me. And there was some self-imposed stigma from that, and that mm-hmm. fear of judgment. Mm-hmm. But once we get to where we're clear on how, what we think about it, what we believe about it in the same with our kids and what the primary emotions we're feeling when we're coming from a place of love, that stuff can kind of melt away. So it kind of happens automatically when we're working on our own path to recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so important uh, at whatever stage we're at with our kids that we all work on our own, our own path. You know, our kids are working on their stuff. We are working on our own stuff. And sometimes we can help each other, but um, everybody's on their own path. And some of our paths are really, really tough. That's for sure. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for being here with our Safe Home families and helping us understand a little bit more about what drug addiction can do to our families and how we can all you know, maintain our own wholeness, no matter what happens, even if the absolute worst thing can happen, that you are still whole, you're still um, working on your own journey, and you're helping other people and uh, really honoring, honoring your daughter. So thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. You're awesome. So if anyone would like to get a hold of Heather, her website is heatherrosscoaching.com. I'll put that in the show notes. And you can support Safe Home Podcast by becoming a member on Patreon, patreon.com slash safe home. And find us, both Safe Home and Heather, find us all on social media. Share away and uh, let's let all the parents and families know about this resource that need to know. So everyone, thank you for listening. Please share this episode. And Heather and I want you all to stay Stay safe. safe.